Well, turn with me now back to Exodus. We're going to read from Exodus chapter 25. Sort of a part two, as, as it were. Exodus 24. We saw this covenant ceremony. The foot of the mountain, the side of the mountain, the top of the mountain. It is in that context, in that experience or out of that experience, that we are then handed these instructions in Exodus 25. Here again, the word of the Lord. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the children of Israel that they bring me an offering. From everyone who gives it willingly with his heart, you shall take my offering. And this is the offering which you shall take from them. Gold, silver, and bronze, blue, purple, and scarlet thread, fine linen, goat's hair, ram skins dyed red, badger skins and acacia wood, oil for the light, and spices for the anointing oil, and for the sweet incense, onyx stones, and stones to be set in the ephod and in the breastplate. Let them make me a sanctuary, that I may dwell among them. According to all that I show you, that is the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of all its furnishings, just so you shall make it. And they shall make an ark of acacia wood, two and a half cubits shall be its length, a cubit and a half its width, and a cubit and a half its height. You shall overlay it with pure gold. Inside and out you shall overlay it, and shall make on it a molding of gold all around. You shall cast four rings of gold for it, put them in its four corners. Two rings shall be on one side and two rings on the other side. And you shall make poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. You shall put the poles and the rings on the sides of the ark and that the ark may be carried by them. The poles shall be in the rings of the ark. They shall not be taken from it. And you shall put into the ark the testimony which I will give you. You shall make a mercy seed of pure gold. Two and a half cubits shall be its length, and a cubit and a half its width. And you shall make two cherubim of gold. Of hammered work you shall make them at the two ends of the mercy seat. One cherub at one end, and the other cherub at the other end. You shall make the cherubim at the two ends of it, of one piece with the mercy seat. And the cherubim shall stretch out their wings above. Covering the mercy seat with their wings, and they shall face one another. The faces of the cherubim shall be toward the mercy seat. You shall put the mercy seat on the top of the ark. And in the ark you shall put the testimony that I will give you. And there I will meet with you, and I will speak with you from above the mercy seat. From between two cherubim, which are on the ark of the testimony about everything which I will give you in commandment to the children of Israel. You shall also make a a table of acacia wood. Two cubits shall be its length, a cubit shall be its width, and a cubit and a half its height. And you shall overlay it with pure gold, and make a molding of gold all around. You shall make for it a frame of a handbreadth all around. And you shall make a gold molding for the frame all around. And you shall make it, for it, four rings of gold. And put the rings on the four corners that are at its legs. 
The ring shall be close to the frame as holders for the poles to bear the table. And you shall make the poles of acacia wood and overlay them with gold. That the table may be carried with them. You shall make its dishes, its pans, its pitchers, and its bowls for pouring. You shall make them of pure gold. And you shall set the showbread on the table always before me. You shall also make a lampstand of pure gold. The lampstand shall be a a hammered work. Its shaft, its branches, its bowls, its ornamental knobs and flowers shall be of one piece. And six branches shall come out of its sides. Three branches of the lampstand to one side, three branches of the lampstand to the other side. Three bowls shall be made with almond blossoms on one branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower. And three bowls made like almond blossoms on the other branch, with an ornamental knob and a flower. And so for the six branches that come out of the lampstand. On the lampstand itself, four bowls shall be made like almond blossoms, each with its ornamental knob and flower. And there shall be a knob under the first two branches of the same, a knob under the second two branches of the same, and a knob under the third two branches of the same, according to the six branches that extend from the lampstand. Their knobs and their branches shall be of one piece. All of it shall be one hammered piece of pure gold. You shall make seven lamps for it, and they shall arrange its lamps so that they give light in front of it. And its wick trimmers and their trays shall be of pure gold. It shall be made of a talent of pure gold with all these utensils. And see to it that you make them according to the pattern which was shown you on the mountain. Amen. In Exodus 24, we see that Israel can neither go up nor come near. We see that the priests and elders can go up, but they cannot come near. So in sum, everybody but Moses has a problem. No one can get near God. So God solves the problem in Exodus 25. Look at verse 8. And let them make me a sanctuary that I may dwell among them. Exodus 24 and 25 are putting together this theology. You can't go up to God. He has to come down to you. With that in mind, turn to Hebrews chapter 8. Our sermon passage this morning is from Hebrews chapter 8. I'm going to read verses 1 through 6. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. We'll continue our series here on Jesus, superior to the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 8, verses 1 through 6. Here again, the word of the Lord. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in heaven a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected and not man. For every high priest is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. For if he were on earth, 
he would not be a priest. Since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law, who serve the copy and shadow of the heavenly things. As Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle, for he said, See, that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now, he has obtained a more excellent ministry. Inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. Amen and amen. It is easy to get discouraged in life. It's easy to be frustrated with ourselves, to see the same sins reappearing day after day, to see the same temptations overcoming us day after day. It's easy to be frustrated with our spouse, our children, our parents, our family. They don't seem to be as godly as we want them to be. They don't seem to be as loving and patient with us as we think we are to them. It's easy to be frustrated with our friends and our neighbors, our co-workers. They don't seem to be coming to church when we invite them. They don't seem to be believing the gospel when we share it with them. They don't even seem to be opening the door for gospel conversations. It's easy to be frustrated with this world. We live in a country that thinks that debt is of no consequence and the life of a baby likewise is of no consequence. We, we live in a world, in a set of relationships, dare I say in a church, where it's easy to be frustrated and easy to be discouraged. As first-time parents, we were blessed to live in a basement apartment of good friends. One of the blessings of that was the rent was cheap. One of the other blessings was that every time our baby did something that terrified us, which was almost daily, we could just go upstairs and say, our baby just did this. And the older, wiser, experienced parents could say, yes, babies do that. And there was this relief. We need in our lives people who encourage us. People who relieve the frustration. Not by making false promises about the way the world is. Not by trying to supply us with a fresh set of tricks and tools that will make us better people or the world a better place. But friends and family members who really offer us hope, who offer us the truth. And today the Holy Spirit is that friend. He comes to us in Hebrews chapter 8. And he whispers to us in this incredible image. And says, Jesus is with you. And Jesus is for you. And with that, our discouragement lifts. And with that, our frustration can melt. When we know, 
When we believe Jesus is with us and Jesus is for us, then we don't have to lose hope. So friends, Jesus is with you and Jesus is for you. Do not lose heart. Do not lose hope. Let's look at the text together. Notice in verse 1 that the Holy Spirit brings us to a climactic moment in this letter. He says, now. Now this is the main point of what we are saying. Have you ever wondered what the main point of the book of Hebrews is? Here you go. Have you ever wondered what it is that this book is trying to communicate to you? Here it is. It's what we call the thesis statement, yes? It's what we call the topic sentence, yes? Now, after seven chapters, having established that Jesus is superior to the angels who spoke to our fathers in Genesis, having established that Jesus is superior to Moses who gave the law in Mount Sinai, having established that Jesus is superior to the Levites and Aaron and all their priesthood, now, the main point of what we are saying is we have such a high priest. Don't skip these words. We have such a high priest. It's not a subjunctive. It's not a conditional. Oh, you could have. Oh, you might have. Oh, he's available. Bring him up. It's a statement of fact. Beloved, Jesus is with you. And Jesus is for you. He's not waiting for you to get the memo. He's not waiting for you. He's loving you. He's offering himself. He's intervening in your life. This is the main point of what the Holy Spirit wants you to understand. You have a high priest. You have someone who is full of sympathy. Full of compassion. Full of pity. Who knows what it's like to be tempted. And yet without sin. Someone who has gone the distance. Resisting every temptation. Sinlessly. And he knows how deep your struggle is. He's gone deeper in that struggle than you have. He has compassion on you. He has pity on you. He is such a high priest. That he is seated at the right hand of majesty on high in the heavens. Notice the three superlative phrases. It's like we're clutching at the language. Because we can't get enough words in here to make this communicated. He is seated at the right hand of the throne. That is the position of power and of privilege. He's the heir. He's at the right hand. He's where all the strength resides. He's where all the glory and goodness is. There at the right hand of the throne of the majesty, of divinity, of glory, of splendor. He is there at the right hand of the majesty in heaven. He is in the highest place. When we say he's a high priest, what we really are saying is he is the most highest priest. We don't have enough superlatives. We cannot bring our language up to transcend to the level of his glory. 
Jesus is such a high priest. So it seems counterintuitive to say he's seated, doesn't it? He is such a high priest that he is seated at the right hand of God. But we remember that those Levitical priests, those Aaron priests, they never sat down, did they? There was always another animal to kill. There was always more blood to shed. They never achieved forgiveness. They never accomplished atonement. They had to keep killing the animals every single day. But not Jesus. Not only is he a sympathetic high priest, a compassionate high priest, not, is he, not only is he a powerful, glorious, heavenly high priest, he's an effective high priest. He's seated because his job's done. The sin is actually forgiven. The favor of God is one. Peace is yours. Reconciliation with God, friendship with God, it's yours. You have a Father in heaven who loves you through your brother, Jesus Christ. He's done it. This is the main point of what the Holy Spirit is saying. By the way, it's not just the main point of the book of Hebrews. It's the main point of every single page on it in your entire Bible. This is the main point of the Bible. That there is a Jesus. And he's done it all. Trust him. Trust him. Do not lose heart. He's done everything to make you godlike. He's done everything to make this wicked world right. He's done everything to accomplish the new heavens and the new earth. And to bring about eternal life for these mortal flesh. Friends. Don't lose heart. Look to Jesus. He is such a high priest. Now this is verse 1. Verse 2. He is a minister of the sanctuary, the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. By saying that Jesus is a minister, the Holy Spirit is showing us that He came into the world not to be served, but to serve. He has come, though He is a heavenly high priest, though He is at the right hand of power and majesty and glory, it was not so when He was on earth. He did not exhibit Himself majestic and glorious. No, He went about in His everyday relationship a minister, a servant, a leader of people who loved them, who met their needs and cared for them. And he was a minister specifically of the sanctuary and tabernacle which the Lord had erected, not man. He was a servant that was reconciling sinful humans with a holy God. The purpose of the sanctuary, as we just read about in Exodus 25 verse 8, was that God might dwell with us. We can't go up the mountain and see God. We're too sinful. We can't go to the top of the mountain and be near to God. We're too sinful. We need a sanctuary on earth where God can dwell with us. And it's not made out of badger skins dyed red, as cool as that looks when you're walking through the desert. And it's not made of gorgeous dark wood wainscoting as nice as it looks in this room. That sanctuary... 
in which God is with us is Jesus. He is the servant who came to serve divinity to humanity, who came to give us fellowship with our Heavenly Father. He is the true tabernacle, the true servant of that tabernacle. As he said to the Pharisees, destroy this temple and I will raise it on three days, in three days. And they said, it took 46 years to put all these stones together. And he's like, and you missed the whole point. Those stones represent me. I'm the point of all the stones. You don't need the stones anymore. God is in flesh and dwelling among us. He is the sanctuary in which God dwells. He is the true tabernacle in which he dwells. And he dwells with us. Beloved, we are the temple of the Holy Spirit, are we not? We are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a peculiar people called out of darkness to proclaim his marvelous light. Jesus is with us. And we, through our union with Christ, are Emmanuel with Christ. He, as an individual, is God with us. We, as a community, is God with us. He dwells with us. Jesus is with us. This is the point, the main point, that God is with us in Christ. But then in verse 3, we are also told that Jesus is for us. For every high priest is to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it is necessary that this one also have something to offer. You see, Jesus is such a high priest, full of sympathy for us, full of strength for us, full of proximity to us, he is with us, that he also has to fulfill his priestly office. All those Levitical priests, all those priests of Aaron, they brought their rams, they brought their goats and their sheep and their ox and their bull. And they killed animal after animal. All the way back to Abel. You remember that? Abel and Cain come of age. It's their chance to choose what they're going to do. In our culture, we would say they were college kids. And suddenly mom and dad aren't going to drag them to church on Sunday morning anymore. So they have to decide for themselves, are they going to go? And Cain and Abel say, you know what? Yeah, we're going to go to church today. And Abel brings a lamb. Life must be lost for Abel to go on living. In the same way, in Genesis 22, Abraham goes up the Mount of Moriah and he binds his son Isaac and he tosses him on the altar and he takes this giant knife. You know why it's giant? Because he loves his son and he wants him dead like that. And he takes it with two hands. Because he wants to put all his body weight behind that knife thrust. Because he wants his son dead like that. He doesn't want him to suffer. And he's going to aim right here between the rib cage. Because he wants to kill him as quickly as possible and he knows how to do it. And he lifts it high above his head. And he hears, Abraham, Abraham. Check out the ram in the thicket. And yet, 
Both of these images, powerful to the imagination, pale in comparison to the Jordan River, where John says, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. This high priest didn't bring an ox, didn't bring a ram or a goat or a lamb. Brought himself. He offers himself in fulfillment of Abraham's words to his son Isaac. God himself will provide himself the sacrifice for sin. That is exactly what this high priest does. We have such a high priest, heavenly and glorious and majestic, who is with us, sacrificing himself. For us. Jesus is with us. Jesus is for us. Don't lose heart. Don't be discouraged. The Holy Spirit now tells us. How to make this comparison. With the old system. For if he were on earth. He would not be a priest. You see. If Jesus weren't high priest in heaven. He'd still be under the law. He'd still be part of the old Mosaic system. He wouldn't have fulfilled all righteousness on our behalf. He wouldn't have raised from the dead through the power of an indestructible life. And so he wouldn't qualify as a priest. He didn't offer any sacrifices the 33 years he was on the earth. He wasn't a priest. He wasn't part of the line of Levi. He wasn't a descendant of Aaron. He was a descendant of Judah, an heir to the throne of David, not a priest. Instead, here on earth are those priests who offer gifts according to the law. We have, uh, here on earth, priests. Those who offer God sacrifices and gifts to atone for their sin. And my friends, they have all been surpassed by Jesus. Just as Aaron and Levi have been eclipsed by Christ, please believe that every faux priest to which we subscribe has been eclipsed by Jesus. Your obedience cannot atone for your sin. Your sorrow and your tears for your sin cannot atone for your sin. You are not a priest. And there is nothing you can offer that atones for your sin. That accomplishes forgiveness for your sin. This is good news. We can abandon these earthly charlatans. We can abandon these promises that lead to death. There is no salvation in your works. There is no salvation in the warmth of your piety or the depth of your sadness over your sin. There is salvation in Christ and Christ alone. He is the heavenly high priest. The earthly priest couldn't get the job done. They still can't. We don't need to look to our spouse. We don't need to look to our children. We don't need to look to our parents. They can't save us. We look to Jesus. He saves us. He is the one who is with us and who is for us. Again, when we were young parents, we were in a store. I think it was Walmart. And we had a little baby who was fussing. I won't tell you which one. And as the little baby was fussing, 
We were doing what a lot of young parents do. We were ignoring the baby. And a well-meaning stranger came along and said, you know, if you don't answer his or her cries, you will teach him or her that you won't always be there for them. And Lydia and I looked at each other and went, that is exactly what I want this kid to know. I'm not God. I'm dad. I'm not the Jesus my kids are looking for. I can't save them. I'm not the Jesus you're looking for. I'm just a pastor. I have a Jesus I offer you. He's the one. Love him. Seek him. He's with you and for you. In this end. Boy, I I wish I had so much more time. In this end, verse 5, we are thrown back into Exodus 24 and 25, in which we are told that Moses was divinely instructed to build the copy and the shadow of the heavenly things when he built the tabernacle. I so want to do this. The promise here, the command here, is that the tabernacle which we saw constructed in detail in Exodus 25 was not a boring waste of your time. It was not just an exciting thing for the engineers who could actually envision it, unlike the rest of us. It was a line-by-line, image-by-image, exact replica of the heavenly reality, which isn't a tent. It's Jesus. That tabernacle and the exact specifications that are there designed, each one, if you go through them one by one, and I so badly want to do it, and I just don't have another hour, because I'm not preaching Exodus 25 today, point to Jesus. I'll give you one. There's an Ark of the Covenant, right? It's the first thing that goes into the tabernacle. It's a box made out of wood, covered in gold. And what's inside it? The law of God. Because Jesus has the law in his heart. Because Jesus is the law in flesh. Because the law dwells within him. Psalm 40, verse 6. I have come to do your law, O Lord, it is my delight. All right, I'll give you another one. There's on both the Ark of the Covenant and on the table with the showbread, four rings through which these poles of acacia wood and gold go so that no one ever touches the Ark of the Covenant or the table of presence. Human hands are too sinful, once it's built, to touch those holy artifacts. How did Jesus heal every single sick person he encountered? He touched them. Are you kidding me? The Ark of the Covenant is too holy to touch. But Jesus touches sinners to save them. Yes, every single detail in that chapter is patterned after the heavenly reality. 
And that heavenly reality that is patterned after is Jesus. He is the one who is with us. He is the one who is for us. He is the pattern that Moses was shown on the mountain. We see that in Exodus 24. What is the blood of the covenant that covers the foot of the mountain? It is Christ's crucifixion. Who is the God, the only God at the Father's side, whom they see and with whom they feast on the mountainside? It is Christ, God in the flesh. And who is it that is the lone mediator at the top of the mountain succumbing to the consuming fire, the wrath of God? It is Christ crucified for sinners. In this way then, verse 6, but now he has obtained a more excellent ministry. He is the sum total of all these earthly things. He is the point of every page of the Bible. He is the point of every earthly experience you have endured all your life long. Every memory, every story, every song in your life experience is whispering Jesus saves. Is whispering you need Jesus. Is whispering come to your Father in heaven and be full of the Spirit of Christ. He has alone this more excellent ministry. He actually serves the reality. He actually reconciles us to God. He actually forgives sins. He's not just a picture of it. He's not just a type or a shadow of it. He's not just an illustration of it. He's the reality. And that is what's true of us. This church, this congregation, is not the reality. Christ is. We are His image. His community, His body, His bride. Those are all metaphors. His is the excellent ministry. Not mine. Not ours. His is the superior covenant. He is the one who actually establishes a relationship of love with the Father in heaven. And He is the one who has established this covenant on better promises. Those promises which are the same. When the Spirit here says that they are better promises, He doesn't mean that they are new and different. He means that they are at last fulfilled. They are accomplished. They are done and complete. We need not lose heart. Jesus has done it all and is yet doing it all. We need not lose heart. To end on a little bit of an upbeat. There's this great joke that I've always loved from Jeff Foxworthy. How many of you use the phrase, you know, when somebody asks, did you find the thing you were looking for? Yeah, it was the last place I looked. Have you ever used that phrase? Have you ever heard anyone use that phrase? Jeff Foxworthy's observation is, boy, I hope so. I'd hate to meet the guy who found it and is still looking for it. Friends, this is what happens to us. We have found it. Stop looking. We have found salvation. His name is Jesus. We have found glory and majesty and eternal life. His name is Jesus. Stop looking. You're not going to find him in your spouse, your children, your parents, your coworkers, a world made right. You're going to find it in the person and work of Jesus Christ, who in turn is going to work out all these things when you seek first 
his kingdom and his righteousness. Beloved, Jesus is with you. Do not lose heart. Beloved, Jesus is for you. Do not lose heart. Please pray with me. Father in heaven, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for this beautiful passage. We thank you for these great truths. And ask that you would write them on our hearts, that we would believe them and obey them. We pray that you would bind them up in our minds, that we would understand them and plumb their depths. Give us grace, O God, that we would pursue this reality and live lives centered on Christ, growing up out of Christ, that we might find in him all our hope and not lose heart. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.